Hello everyone, I'm very thrilled to welcome today Mark van Vucht, Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the Freie Universität, and Jane Arayanan, Professor of Organization and Management at the National University of Singapore. Mark, Jay, welcome to this podcast. Hi, Julia. Hi, Julia. Thank you for having us. Actually, the honor is all mine because you've just released a new article, which is called COVID-19 and the Workplace, Implications, Issues and Insights for Future Research and Action. And this was just freshly published by the American psychologist. So I'm very thrilled to be doing this. Thank you. Thank you. To start with, would you be okay to introduce a bit what drove the writing of this article and how did it came into being? Um, well, if I if I may start, um, well, we have to go back to uh, to March uh, when um, the uh, pandemic, um, which was already happening in Asia, was also uh, showing uh, signs of um, uh, emergence in in Asia and also little, uh, in Europe and also a little bit in the US. Um, and as it was clear that this was becoming not just a, a local thing but a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic, I thought it would, would be uh, good opportunity to get uh, scholars, scientists in uh, industrial and organizational psychology um, together to discuss amongst each other what are the sort of psychological implications of this, particularly for the uh, workplace and for workplaces uh, around the world. So um, uh, we already had an example, I think, uh, because there was already a, a study published on the, the social psychological consequences uh, so in terms of social distancing. Um, um, and so uh, we put together a, um, a group of experts. Well, I first approached Jay, uh, representing Asia, if you like, uh, National University of Singapore, and, and then Kevin, uh, representing the American angle, he, Kevin Kniven is a um, professor at uh, Cornell University. And the three of us together, we had uh, various meetings uh, whereby we had two choices. One choice was to write a review paper ourselves with the three of us. But that would be uh, maybe a little bit shallow because we're not experts on all aspects of um, uh, work and organizational behavior. And so the idea grew to invite the experts in various domains that we thought were uh, of interest, were affected by COVID-19, uh, to provide some uh, input in our uh, writing process. And um, that is what uh, we actually did. And um, uh, Dr. Kevin Kniven, uh, who's not actually um, at this meeting, uh, he um, actually was the driving force behind it. So he's also the lead author of uh, the paper, uh, we should say, because without him, uh, I don't think this would have uh, taken off really. The writing process was such that we first selected the topics. So just as one example, we thought, hey, um, COVID-19 uh, might have uh, different implications for uh, workers based on their personality or based on their sex or based on their race and ethnicity. And so we thought, okay, who can tell us something about individual differences in response to a crisis such as these? Who can tell us something about gender differences, maybe? Uh, who can tell us something about uh, virtual teams? Because that, of course, was uh, the norm for um, uh, uh, once the COVID-19 situation set in. Uh, and so we selected 
topics first and then identified the key players, the key scientists in these fields. And we were very happy that um, we ultimately um, uh, collected a group of 29 in total authors. That includes the three of us, Kevin, Jay, and myself as the, the coordinators, if you like. Um, and I think each of the people we approached via email was uh, willing to contribute. So that was a huge success and it showed the urgency and importance of this, uh, this topic too. And a great endeavor, because I think you've managed to do all of this remotely. Correct, yes. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah. I think scientists, of course, have... Um, um, have a, have a good uh, sort of a way um, to, to work remotely because most uh, of our projects uh, involve uh, remote uh, collaborations with uh, people on the other side of the planet. So, yeah. You've mentioned individual differences, virtual teams. What other literature did you, did you look into? We looked at a, a number of topics, right? So, uh, I mean, you know, we had a much longer list of topics, you know, when we began. And as, uh, so for example, we looked at uh, loneliness at the workplace. Uh, we looked at, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, things like uh, whether pe when people come to work when they are still sick. And this idea is called presenteeism. How does that, uh, how is that impacted by, by the pandemic? So we literally like, was it was like a brainstorming process, you know, between uh, uh, Kevin, Mark and I. And, uh, and it was really amazing how, uh, you know, when, when we, when we came at things from a different angles, like we, we, we would all do our homework and we would come into the meeting and we would have similar thoughts. So we kind of created this shared understanding of what's going on, identified the topics. And like Mark said, uh, we really were amazingly, uh, uh we are very grateful to all the co-authors who actually uh, agreed to do this. So, you know, we know that people are, many people are in different, uh, Situations, scenarios, you know, um, you know, with work, uh, care, uh, caring, care arrangements at home, childcare, many different situations. So, so people uh, immediately said yes, and some of them really, uh, uh, you know, went beyond. Like, you know, they had so many personal emergencies, but they still contributed to this uh, despite all the uh, challenges on their time. So, we're very grateful for that. So, there is a list of nine topics that eventually ended up in the paper. Uh, but within those topics, there are actually subtopics. There are really nine broad headings, which, uh, you know, I think in the show notes, you will have the link to the original article. But we had a longer list. And in the process, as, as peer review processes, some topics got merged into other topics, some topics got left out. So we ended up with those nine headings that you will see in the, in the final paper. Uh, but there are subtopics as well within those topics. Yeah, and, and in terms of literature, if I may add, because this is this is really important. So even though it's called uh, COVID-19 in the workplace, we actually have very little uh, data in the paper. There's no data in the paper. It's a review paper, um, but also no uh, studies uh, directly uh, related to this pandemic because it's been going on only since, since February, March. And now we see an emergence of, of actual studies, data with data on how people cope with this specific pandemic. But the intention of this paper was really to review from past research on all kinds of different crises, including 
9-11, for example, which was also a crisis, a different one, but in some ways also uh, mobility was um, uh, removed for uh, some time being, certain areas, certainly of the US, people didn't go to work for a limited time. The same with the economic crisis. And we even go back uh, historically to the uh, the Spanish flu, which was a, a, a pandemic uh, that hit uh, the world um, just as the, the first wars ended some, yeah, almost 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. So this was really a, a, a paper where we thought, let's look at the solid evidence. What do we know about virtual teams, for example? There's been an existing literature for 20, 30 years on this topic. So what do we know if you compare virtual teams with face-to-face -face teams? And so we hope that this paper also has some longevity beyond COVID-19 because it deals with all aspects of a changing workplace from more face-to-face -face interactions to more remote interactions. And one thing I think that is really important, and one could consider that as a, a weakness of this paper, uh, but it, it's also clearly conveyed in the paper, um, take the literature on, on working from home. That's also been studied for 20, 30 years, even since probably the oil crisis um, of the, the past century. But of course, working from home for many people was a, a, a privilege. It was a something that they negotiated with their employer. And so extrapolating the evidence from working from home to this situation where 80, 90% of the workforce suddenly, abruptly, and mandatory had to work from home, that, that's quite difficult. And these limitations, I think, must be taken into uh, account when you read our paper. So who should read this paper? Who is this intended for? So that's a great question. So I think, you know, the way we wrote this paper uh, was intended for both researchers as well as practitioners. Um, and, uh, and, and just to step back also, like, you know, to go back to what Mark was saying earlier, so uh, there is no data in the paper, right? So in that sense, this is, there is some speculation in the paper. But if the speculation was from the three of us, uh, and we can't be experts in all of these areas, the speculation is from scholars who've studied some of these topics for many, many years. So what you're getting is all of those years of insight and wisdom being distilled uh, through their writings. So you're looking at this pandemic through their lens. So that's what you're getting. Uh, so that's the, that's the first. So as a result, we, we've written this for researchers. There is a research implication in the paper, but there is also a, a very strong uh, practical implication because um, you know practitioners are able to pick the brains of these experts through this paper to really say what would these experts do given this novel situation that has emerged, uh, even though we don't have data because we can't wait for the evidence to build up before we act. So we need to act on the basis of what we know now, uh, because what that, those actions will have real consequences for people in the workplace. Mm. And uh, I, I've read it, of course, and uh, you split it in three main subjects, uh, changes in work practices, changes for workers, and moderating factors. Right. And you go from prior research to the actual COVID-19 and then the need for further research and the future roadmaps for uh, for research. Let's step a bit and, and start with the beginning. If you think about uh, history, what have we learned or what should we have learned 
Um, so, well, one of my um, expertise is deep history, um, our evolutionary history, and we start the paper with that and we end the paper also with that uh, because um, uh, history, of course, uh, gives us a, a, a great sort of um, telescope uh, to look uh, into far into the future. And so one of the things um, that I've, I've been doing is um, looking historically at the relationship between uh, societies that uh, have suffered a great deal from pathogens uh, like viruses and bacteria and whatever, and see how um, their uh, organizational structures and societies have, uh, have, have evolved. And uh, one of the relationships uh, in that literature suggests that um, uh, societies and organizations that are more likely to suffer from pathogens are um, societies that are more closed, uh, more conformist, uh, lower tolerance for deviance, more adherence to rules, more adherence also to authority. Um, and so um, this kind of sort of deep history gives us a sort of view of what would happen in terms of a reaction to an immediate um, uh, uh, infection threat uh, that is uh, affecting us. And so that also has an implication for workplaces. And we see, of course, a shift in workplaces from more open, uh, more flexible to uh, more closed uh, workplaces uh, if they are reopening under strict rules of hygiene and um, registration, who's in the office and who's not. And all those kinds of things suggest that there is a, a big transformation uh, going on. And that is suggested really by... Um, uh, sort of deeper historical evidence. Did you see any resemblance between what has happened previously with the Spanish flu during uh, hurricanes, 9-11, and all of the other crisis events with what has happened in COVID-19? Yeah, so in, in some ways, um, it is, it's a crisis. And a crisis, of course, uh, is a situation where people are highly uncertain where, as Jay earlier said, you have to act before you have all the knowledge. Um, and so, um, but it's also different. Uh, so so uh, we spend in the paper um, talking about uh, uh, social distancing, for example. And social distancing is, of course, an adequate response to an infection, uh, infection threat. But it's not a natural response to a crisis because as you see from hurricanes or terrorist strikes or whatever, you see usually as a response that people are sticking together. Um, and there is a high sort of degree of uh, uh, loyalty to each other, solidarity. That was also somewhat the case here, but it was, of course, moderated by the fact that in order to tackle this crisis, we really had to not be close to our colleagues or our family members, particularly if they had some infection risk. So in some ways, this crisis is very different. And then you look at other pandemics, in, including the Spanish flu, for example, that has really changed uh, society a great deal. So one of the things coming out of that particular crisis was they increased concern for the health and well-being of employees. For example, large-scale insurance schemes uh, were um, developed um, in both Europe and the US in response to uh, this uh, particular pandemic. And so we will see these um, big shifts again with COVID-19 as we are already seeing. 
So let's then touch on the now and talk about the changes in the work practice, the changes for workers and the moderating factors of, of all of these. In the paper, we go through uh, different uh, trends that we see that are coming, right? So if you look at the emergent changes in the workplace, uh, uh, you know, even since we wrote this uh, paper to now, there are already like, you know, shifts happening, right? Like, so that's the pace at which things are going. So we, we looked at, look at three uh, main salient changes uh, that are going to come in the work practices. The one is the shift to virtual work. We call it uh, work from home. Uh, it could also be work from anywhere, uh, but it's work from home for now because there's not many, too many places you can go to other than home right now. It's a virtual teamwork. How do you work with others in a virtual team that Mark already referred to? And how do you lead and manage people virtually? And that's, that's, a, that's a big topic as well. So those are three uh, changes uh, in the emergent uh, changes. Then we look at um, how are things going to change for employees and workers. So the first is social distancing that Mark already referred to and how this is not natural for us and what is the, the cost of this from a mental health, uh, physical health perspective. And I don't even like that word social distancing, actually. We could have uh, used a better word like physical distancing, but that's what the WHO, I think, or whoever came up with it, uh, uh, called it. Uh, but there are costs to that. And uh, closely related to that is the health and uh, and well-being. And Marcus also referred to that a couple of times. I think that's going to be the a big change. The employers actually are going to have to pay more attention to health uh, and uh, work and people. You, I mean, things like mandatory sick leave, you know, uh, is is just going to be a no-brainer after this uh, kind of a pandemic. Those sorts of issues are going to come up. The other big one, which also was compounded by. Uh, all of the Black Lives Movement uh, uh, in in the U.S. and and the and the and the and the related protests that happened in so many parts of the world around inequality um, and uh, closely related to inequality is also unemployment because people are being furloughed. Um, there are loss of jobs. So many, I think we are having record unemployment claims in many parts of the world. So that's that's the other uh, thing. And then we bring what's called a moderating factor. So the moderating factors are really like, a, it's a it's a technical term. Uh, it's, I think practitioners would understand it as contingent factors, which is that, you know, these changes are not going to affect everybody equally. Uh, you know, we've already seen, for example, women uh, uh, have had uh, taken a much larger share uh, of the stress at work. There are some other... Uh, um, 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 you know, reports, industry reports that have come out that have said similar things. Um, and so we look at demographics. So uh, uh, race, uh, uh, gender being one, uh, some of them. And then we look at individual difference. So psychologists have a rich tradition of studying personality. So are, is everybody going to be affected similarly? So we do, uh, we, we speculate on whether certain personality profiles, for example, extroverts versus introverts, are they going to be impacted differently by these changes at the workplace? And culture and culture or organizational norms, as we call it, whether tight versus loose cultures are going to uh, be impacted differently. Are people, for example, like, you know, when you issue, when you issue uh, uh, an order, like wear a mask, how are cultures going to even adopt these practices depending on the, the tightness versus looseness of the culture? How do you punish those that break the norm? So there are these differences. So we, we really classify them into three, um, uh, three different, um, uh, areas, but you know, this is not exhaustive, right? Like, are 
uh, I must hasten to add, it's not like we've covered everything possible. Um, we did this uh, fairly uh, comprehensively at that time with fair amount of uh, time pressure on, on our hands. I believe that we have been quite comprehensive. There are some other attempts to do similar things and there's a fair degree of convergence. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are happy to, you know, uh, if uh, practitioners or listeners to this point out some omissions, uh, you know, we are happy to take that on board. It's not it's not meant to be the holy grail of of the pandemic and the workplace, but it's meant to be provide you with a with a with some kind of a roadmap going forward. Yeah, no, I I, I would echo that. Of course, we couldn't treat everything, so uh, we the twenty nine of us we are primarily psychologists, uh, industrial and organizational psychologists, so. Uh, what we didn't talk about, for example, is how exactly uh, physical spaces in organizations are going to change as a result of COVID-19. Um, and so uh, the actual design of workplace, uh, we didn't talk so much um, about um, that and also not what happens to uh, multinational corporates, for example, as a result of uh, a sort of a global economic downturn. I mean, these are very important uh, things uh, for management scientists to um, uh, to study, but um, we, we we didn't deal with that. Uh, we narrowed it to what what are the emergent changes in work practices and what are the emergent effects on the workers. And so these are the two two main aspects we focus on. And I think uh, mostly of interest for uh, for everyone if we need to narrow it down. If you were to synthesize the, the main takeaways for organizations and employees, what would be those from already existing research? Wow, well, that's a, a big question. <laughs> we, we do summarize that in the, uh, in the actual paper in a large uh, table. But um, I, think, um, I, th- I think for each of us, there are also different takeaways uh, given our uh, own interests in terms of research. So my research interest is uh, in leadership, for example. And as Jay already hinted at, I think the uh, nature of leadership uh, and the skills that leaders need uh, during and, and maybe even after COVID-19 will have to um, change. And so one of the things that really... Uh, this um, crisis has shown is that uh, leaders need to be more aware about health issues, both uh, compliance to health uh, regulations in the workplace uh, to make sure that all uh, team members and employees uh, that they supervise adhere to the rules and stick to the rules. And we know from research, for example, that men generally are a little bit less adherent to these um, hygiene rules than women. So that's an interesting moderator, if you like. Um, And so, um, and the other aspects of leadership is, of course, the the well-being, the mental well-being of the remote workers. Um, If you don't see them uh, regularly and you don't speak with them regularly, how do you know what's going on? Do we know enough about the domestic situation of our workers? Uh, here you see, of course, a sort of trade-off uh, with privacy issues, um, which we also deal with in our paper and say, well, 
this this crisis makes uh, probably clear that there are also limits to privacy in the sense that you do want to know more about the domestic situation of your workers. You do want to know about any underlying health conditions that they may suffer from, because that's important information once people return to the workplace. And so, uh, more focus on on health oriented leadership is is one thing, and in in combination to that uh, with that is. Uh, sort of the idea that particular leadership styles, uh, like uh, leaders who um, are uh, highly concerned about their status, who are uh, more dominant in the workplace, socially dominant, um, these kinds of leadership styles may be less effective in a COVID-19 working world, where uh, if you're working online, you can't show uh, to your employees the, the big corner office that you have, uh, the the nice clothes, the the secretary that you have that is a barrier between you and the rest of the. And so all these sort of cues of status and dominance uh, have more or less disappeared. And maybe that is a sort of um, uh, a reality check. Uh, it, what what is leadership really about? It's about competence, competence and commitment and care. And if you show that combination, you may be an effective leader. So one of the projects emanating from this may be looking more at how effective is a more feminine leadership style in the workplace uh, as it is affected by COVID-19 and how um, uh, ineffective is a more masculine leadership style where it's more sort of dominance and control based. That's just one of the takeaways, I think. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, so I can kind of chip in uh, and like Mark said, uh, you know, there is a whole bunch of things one could study and that was really the purpose of this paper too, is to generate those many different uh, avenues of research. Personally for me, uh, along the lines Mark already shared is on mental health and wellness, right? Like, so uh, we are seeing reports of uh, uh, increase in uh, calls to suicide hotlines um, um, there is uh, also a certain um, kind of uh, right now I think fatigue is setting in I mean at least like you know it's we, we, we are coming to now six seven months into this pandemic now depending on how you count the start date of the pandemic and now I think there is a there is no end in sight you know so it, it, it what started off as like you know hey work from home hey this is all fun my dog is with me my wife is with me or my partner is with me started off as somewhat fun initially, but now reality is sitting in. Uh, that is if you still have a job, you know, uh, you know, that's uh, the whole sobering element of it. You know, you, you're at one level grateful that at least you have a paycheck coming, you're working still uh, if you are. And then there is this whole, uh, uh, you know, uh, lack of social connection, lack of uh, communication with my with your with your co- colleagues on a regular basis. So work as a respite is something I heard recently in one of my conversations uh, with a with a with a with a with a senior person. He said, "Look, I I actually realize now that for me, work is what kept me happy because I didn't have to deal with those difficult things at home. So I would just take uh, my my business trip and go off to the other side of the planet and just not deal with all that. Right? So you're you have to deal with some of those. So work has different roles it plays in people's lives. Work could also brings meaning to you. So if there's if you're not going to work and if you're working from home and 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 you don't find that sense of connection and meaning, 
so there is so many different things to think about and talk about and and now like you know we are we are looking at this mass experiment having gone on for a few months now so new habits have now set in right so it's not like this sudden shock and things back to normal suddenly organizations are now realizing hey we could actually get more productivity from our workers when they work remotely and we don't have to pay the real estate cost so why do we need to bring them back now so people are beginning to ask some of those questions as well so so this is going to be uh, a big big uh, exogenous shock whose ripples are we going to uh, see for uh, for a long time to come and when we wrote this article we weren't even sure of that right we weren't even sure how long this would last in fact we were in quite a bit of hurry to get this published because we're like oh what if in august this is no longer a a big deal and people will not be care, concerned about our article unfortunately for the world but somewhat fortunately for us <laughs> this is still important and it looks like there is no end in sight so who knows yeah. how this is going to go yeah i think if i may add uh, we also wanted to write a uh, an article that would um, not just be uh, sort of dealing with the the short term uh, consequences of yes. covid-19 yeah, the sort of sudden mandatory working from home but also a sort of perspective on what a workplace could look like uh, that uh, maybe is uh, better for uh, people's uh, mental and physical well-being in the long run even better than before the crisis um, and and so one of the sort of messages i think coming out of this uh, paper too is well what a uh, post pandemic workplace may look like is uh, something where people are uh, more flexible in going to the office uh, not on a 9 to 5 basis uh, every day um why if you have want to do a uh, a piece of work that is really uh, demanding all your attention you can maybe easily do that at home at your computer uh, but work and the office as a, a place where people come to network socialize develop ideas be creative brainstorm etc as a sort of a meeting place as a hub i think that's one of the sort of uh, uh, prospects i think for the future of work coming out of this um, this crisis you've already started to uh, talk about a bit what's going on to happen in the future but in the article you mentioned future roadmaps for research so what are the questions that we have unanswered and that you do want to answer through research maybe research that has already started yeah so um uh well some of the research that i do has to indeed uh, concerns leadership and how leadership will have to change and how we can um implement leadership development programs where there's more uh, emphasis on on health orientation um so that that's that's one aspect uh, the other aspect uh, we're looking at in terms of our research is these moderating factors uh as jay has already said and it's also clearly conveyed in the paper remote work may be good for some people but may not be so good for everyone uh, and so depending on both what profession you have uh, if you're an IT worker working on a piece of dedicated software uh, where uh, you solely work independently then maybe remote work is is for you but if you are highly interdependent on the inputs of of other people in your work then maybe it's not so good 
uh, people who live alone. For them, work has a different meaning because going to work is also a, a place to socialize. And so for people who live alone or people who live in, at fa uh, with families uh, or with housemates, the effects may be quite different. And so um, these moderating factors still need to be studied in terms of their importance. And that is what currently research groups around the world, including uh, our co-authors, are doing. Yeah. Yeah, so I echo that. And uh, my focus has been on understanding health and wellness and seeing if we could use, you know, how could you use things like mindfulness, for example, with Julia, you and I have spoken about before, uh, can can help. And, and we also are looking at uh, how uh, can people manage the fatigue of just being in front of a, a Zoom call like we are now? Uh, you know, how do you do this? How do you actually reduce your... Uh, your fatigue, how do you function optimally uh, in these sorts of engaging with these sorts of tools? And uh, I have another uh, project where we look at how can you uh, be creative in virtual teams? What does it even mean to have engagement and creativity in virtual teams? And how does hierarchy uh, help or hinder that process? And, and there are many tools available now, which many people are adopting. Like, you know, we used to just use emails as the default uh, mode of communication but now there are other tools available like you know slack microsoft teams there are many things going around how does the adoption or use of those tools help or improve virtual team functioning so there are many many different questions really honestly for a social scientist very rarely do you see such a large exogenous shock to a social system uh you know so where so it's really like so much to study there's a lot to study i think infectious disease Obviously, there is a lot to study, but for social scientists as well, this is a, a remarkably rich time. I know we shouldn't be happy about it uh, because, you know, there are many people are suffering. But really, like, I feel quite blessed and fortunate, actually, to be a social scientist uh, in the midst of these times because this offers so many opportunities. Yeah. Yes. And ultimately, I mean, even the virologist, epidemiologist agree that... Uh, this really, uh, in the absence of a vaccine, can really only be tackled by behavioral intervention. So that's exactly the kind of interventions uh, that we look at in this uh, in this article. How long do you think this new research will, will take? Six months, a year, two years, until we can give back something to the practitioner community? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Julia. And um, I mean, there's a paradox here. Um, and, and we're acutely aware of that. Uh, the paradox is that society wants immediate answers. Um, so we have a problem now. We need a solution um, today or maybe even yesterday we needed a solution. And so there's enormous pressure on scientists and the scientific community to provide quick answers. But unfortunately, uh, as we made clear also in this uh, article, uh, a lot of the research that has been done uh, in the past uh, didn't specifically look at uh, virtual work uh, under a pandemic. Uh, or, and so these are added complexities. And um, the scientific community, I think, would do well to be a little bit cautious um, uh, in uh, coming too quickly with all kinds of um, uh, interventions or, or solutions based on 
evidence from, I don't know, maybe data collected very quickly over the internet uh, in one specific uh, organization or in one specific uh, culture or nation. And so uh, I'm a little bit worried about that. Uh, and um, I, I, yeah, we have the peer review process uh, in, in science, which should prevent that. But of course, journals are also competing with one another and they want to be the, the best and quickest and hottest COVID-19 results. But I think we should be a little bit careful in um, um, extrapolating from all the data that are gathered now to real interventions. Uh, that takes time. I mean, just like a vaccine may take years to develop, uh, uh, some of this also takes years to study, unfortunately. And fortunately, if we do get uh, good uh, database, fact-based uh, results, but you mentioned academia and you asked them not to jump on conclusions, but I think it's even more dangerous for organizations to jump to conclusions and jump on the best practice wagon because that they see others do something and they believe it's good for them as well. Are there areas in which you would caution organizations and you would tell them, hey, better sit or ask someone who knows, ask an expert, don't jump on best practices because this can have direct consequences on, on what you're doing. Any kind of alarm bells that you would ring up front and say, let's wait and see what's, uh, what the research will say. Yeah, so one, on, one thing I've noticed now, this, I mean, this is just an anecdotal observation, this, uh, this belief that, oh, you know, oh, mental health uh, is an issue. So what do we do? Oh, let's introduce virtual uh, coffee hours in the morning, you know, and and that's it. You know, we're going to create bonding and, you know, a communion and people are going to be fine. And my responsibility is over as an organization, right? I think these are fads. I mean, these are kind of quick fix fads. They're easy to implement. I'm not saying don't do it, you know, uh, you know, it's better than nothing. But I think you need to, uh, as practitioners dig deeper and, here I have like, you know, since a number of practitioners might be watching your, uh, watching this podcast. So I, uh, you know, this conversation, I really urge uh, uh, organizations to engage with researchers, you know, um, you know, uh, in terms of data, in terms of uh, providing opportunity, because research, like Mark said, is a very, very long process. And it's a cumulative process, even before we know something about a phenomena many different groups of researchers work on it and we do what's called a meta-analysis where we uh, look at all of the data and then we cumulati cumulatively can say, this is what we know about a domain. We don't have time for that at some level. We have to generate evidence quickly. And, and I think the social science community has re reacted res uh, you know, remarkably quickly. Many, many people are doing lots and lots of work. So if uh, if a researcher... Uh, comes to you as a practitioner and says, hey, you know, I'm doing some work. Can I uh, collect some data? Do you have access to some data? Please open your doors because you're actually doing a service to the, to, to the entire community by, by actually providing data because we don't know much unless practitioners give us that data and willing, are willing to collaborate with us uh, and generate these joint insights. So I have had more conversations with practitioners in the last three, four months than I have ever done in my past because I would just sit in my ivory tower and do my research in the lab. But now I'm like, you know, let me go out there, talk more with the practitioners and see what kind of data we can gather. So please open your doors, I think is what I would tell practitioners listening to this. 
Yes, I, I very much agree with what uh, Jay says. And, and I think one warning, uh, which I think Jay already also expressed, is um, employers might think now at the moment, oh, well, that um, uh, remote working situation is actually going quite well. Uh, productivity hasn't declined. Uh, I can save some costs maybe and not build these big uh, offices, etc. But I think that is... Uh, really counterproductive uh, because what organizations should should be doing and probably should already have been doing is to develop blueprints for a corona-proof workplace, uh, essentially, or a pandemic-proof workplace um, where, indeed, the workplace has still a function. And we know that uh, from, from all the research that face-to-face -face interactions with colleagues are really very useful. They're very useful for productivity, for sense-making of work, for developing your competence. Uh, the whole mentoring of young uh, colleagues is really helped by these informal face-to-face -face interactions. And so what organizations should be doing is rather than say, oh, this is the new situation that works fine, we can save costs. No, they should develop smarter ways uh, and safer ways of of, of workplaces, of people getting back to workplace and, and making use of the benefits of face-to-face uh, -face communications because that's really, that's been the norm for millions of years for human beings, face-to-face uh, -face interactions. And to suddenly remove that, I think is maybe on a short run, it sounds attractive, but it's not a long-term solution for um, designing uh, the workplace. Jay, you mentioned how organizations can support academia to carry on for the research. Are there certain data points that you look at? Something that if organizations hear this, they can start collecting this data so they can make it available to you. You can carry out your research. And then as we do now, we share this publicly with them so they understand what are the results. What kind of data do you think would be necessary to collect? Yeah, so, you know, um, even, uh, I mean, that's uh, that's. Uh, uh, you know, very large question. It could be so many types of data, but I think, you know, at the minimum, I think organizations should be doing um, surveys or interviews or however they want to collect that data on what is going on with their employees right here, right now, right? Like, how are they coping with this? How is their mental health? How is their physical health? How is their relationship with their coworkers, with their leaders? They need to be collecting this data. In the past, maybe they would have done this once a year because that's how the performance cycle would probably work. Now they need to do it more frequently because things are shifting, things are changing. Um, so, uh, so things they would do, uh, uh, you know, much longer time duration, they need to do it more frequently. Um, and, uh, they, they, you know, they could also build some of these measures into the, into the work practice on a regular, say, if you have an agile, stand up, uh, you know, scrum meeting as a software team at the beginning and the end of a scrum meeting, have some kind of check-in process where you would collect some data on engagement, on well-being, on, on conflict, on, on many things like that. So you could, and there are very simple scales available. Um, you know, if, you know, if any of the folks listening are interested, I think if they get in touch with either Mark or I, uh, or any of our co-authors for that matter. Um, they are all doing some amazing work and, and we are happy to point that out. And surprisingly, many of this, 
you know, are not even, they don't even cost anything, you know, as long as it's used for research purposes and one of us is involved and it goes through a peer review, we can sign non-disclosures. We don't need to uh, disclose the name of the company. That's the arrangement that I have with some of my uh, uh, conversations that I'm having now. We help to collect the data. We provide the insight. We help you create enlightened, data-driven, evidence-based policies. In return, you know, with the names of the organization taken out, we publish peer-reviewed uh, research. That's really the process. And I really uh, think that uh, that symbiotic relationship can benefit both parties because as academics, we want to have an impact. We want to impact scholarship as well as practice being in a business school. So if that process can work, it, it would really help everyone. And how can they reach you? So if anyone decides that, yes, I would like to run some, uh, to collect some data, run some experiments, provide the data to researchers, should they reach you? Should they reach directly to the organizations? Is there a point of contact, someone who can direct them? Because some really have never carried out this, this kind of experiments and they don't know how to do it, even if they would like to participate. I mean, if they write to Mark or me, we are happy to, uh, and maybe we can leave that in the, in the comment section of uh, the show notes. And I'm sure either of us will be respond really quickly. And we will also put them in touch with the, with the right person to speak with, because mm -hmm. they may be interested in a topic that was covered in the paper that yeah. we were not directly uh, responsible for. So we will put them in touch with the approach. For example, if they talk about, you know, mental health, we know who, who we need to put them in touch with. So, so we are happy to uh, be play that role of the coordinator to make sure that that uh, those conversations happen. Perfect. Thank you so much. And through this, I think we all urge everyone to read the paper. We will definitely link it in in our postings, so everyone can see it and have uh, have access to it. Read it and direct questions to Mark and uh, and Jay if you have any. And uh, Jay, and to I Kevin think, also as well. Kevin I just want well. to acknowledge. Kevin's uh, Kevin's email address is in the paper as well, so that's easy. He's easy to reach. He's the corresponding author of the paper. I'm really missing his presence here because he was also an important uh, uh, force to get this done. So he has been great with co with communicating with the appropriate uh, stakeholders. So you write to him; he will put him put any of you in touch with the right person. And I'll contact him and maybe we can discuss a bit of how on, more on how this paper was put uh, together so we can acknowledge all the researchers that have uh, participated and how work was carried out. And then maybe later on, we even go into the depths of each field and discuss in more detail. So it's more clear to everyone what we know, what we don't know, what needs to be researched and what are the conclusions that they can uh, draw and what can they use in, practical, in practice. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. All right. Thanks for your questions, Julia. Thank, thank you, you to thank you to both of you. All right. See you later. See you.